The nice thing about having a crisis plan is you can take it and get it notarized. You can use it in essence as an advanced directive. Welcome to the Emotional Self-Reliance Podcast, exploring wellness tools to empower achieving your fullest potential. Your host is Sarah Price Hancock, Certified Rehabilitation Counselor with an Advanced Certificate in Psychiatric Rehabilitation and a Trained Peer Support Specialist. So let's discuss Emotional Self-Reliance with your host, Sarah. All right, we are back online. This is Sarah and I'm broadcasting to you live from my house. I guess I'm not live because I'm podcasting, but it's all good. Today we will be talking about the Wellness Recovery Action Plan again, and today we're going to be talking about the crisis planning. But before I get into that, I wanted to thank you all for your patience. I'm actually have been silent for about six weeks now because I've been having problems with my voice and um, some other difficulties as well. But I'm getting back on track, hopefully. And so I just wanted to make my 10th episode. Thank you so much for waiting around. I sound like I might have a little bit of a lisp, but that's because we're having some neurological issues that are impacting the nerves in my jaw and my mouth and my tongue. And so the exciting thing is I was actually nonverbal on my birthday, which was March 27th. So I was having problems, um, but I have been able to find some help. So this is great. So let's see. That's why I've been absent. My voice basically became unintelligible. And it's likely because of the nerves that were weakened by the 116 ECT treatments and all of the meds that I've been on. We're trying to figure it out. But... I wanted to share with you my what went well and why because I'll give you more of an update. So I found this neurologist. This is what went well. I found this neurologist who was actually willing to listen to me. He was the fourth neurologist I've been to and he had wonderful questions and he had wonderful um, insights and he was startled that I'd never had blood work done and I'd never had any of the other functional exams done that none of the other um, neurologists had requested those and so he referred me to a movement disorder doctor and I had my appointment with her and it went well as well <laughs> she was very insightful she was willing to listen she had wonderful questions and so a shout out to dr smith and dr hauser at scripts in san diego because as of right now you are on my a-list because you are willing to listen and so i'm very grateful for that that went well because i was determined that i was worth looking for answers that i was it was worth it for me to keep seeking out help. And that's really can be difficult when no one is willing to help you, when you pay all the copays to see these doctors, you wait all the, the time to get into the clinic, and then they tell you that you, whatever you're experiencing is um, a conversion disorder, or it's just in your head, or it's, um, they're not a bad school of thought. <laughs> I had a neurologist tell me that once. I was like, well, then I guess I need to go find another school. (laughs) Anyway, um, so that's what went well. 
And so if you are stuck trying to find good care, just keep looking because you are worth it. Number two, um, I was contacted by an old research colleague out of the blue because he was, and it went well because he was prompted to call me for a completely different matter and chose to act on that prompting. But it turns out that he has some uh, ideas and that we're partnering with the neurologist to help me get back on track, or at least the treatment that I'm using, my own neurologist is okay with. So this is good. Number three, well, hello, my awesome listeners. I've received emails of support from all wonderful listeners because they feel the hope that developing emotional self-reliance can bring and want to share their journeys. So I wanted to just give my email to you again. My email is emotionalselfreliancepodcast at gmail.com. And so go ahead and shoot me an email. Tell me three things that are going well in your life. Explain why you feel they're going well. So one of the people that I interviewed with for their podcast, Sean, he sent me his What Went Well and Why in audio format. So let's hear what's going on well with Sean and why he feels it's going well. This is Sean Rapier. I am the host of the Latter-day Lives podcast, and I recently had Sarah Hancock on as my guest, and it was such a wonderful experience. And at the end, Sarah challenged me to come up with three things that have recently gone well and why. And at first I thought, boy, that's going to be the easiest thing on earth, but it's actually kind of hard to think of three things that have gone well, and I really appreciated the exercise, but I finally came up with uh, three that I wanted to share and why they went well. The first one was this week for my company. I'm in sales for a company that makes um, accessories for computers and phones and whatnot, and this week we had our executive meetings. And I thought they went better than ever. And it all opened up with a presentation that I gave at the beginning. Why did that go so well? I think because of preparation. I spent more time really pondering. Normally, I kind of have a goal uh, for presentations, and I just start building my case and going toward it. But this time, I really pondered and was very prepared. I knew why I was giving the recommendations I was giving, and man, it certainly went well. So that went incredibly well, and I chalk it up primarily uh, to pres- or to preparation on that one. The second one is that I drove home uh, from California back to Utah, and I don't normally drive that far, but I did this time because I wanted to visit my son who lives partway in the middle. He lives down in Cedar City, Utah. So I drove from Southern California and stopped in St. George for the night and then went and saw my son in Cedar City. And that drive went really well. I think that uh, a couple of reasons it went well. First of all, I was very careful about what time I left Southern California, knowing that traffic can get so bad. And while there were some other things I wanted to do still while I was there, I decided instead to just take off and 
get in front of the traffic, and that sure helped. I still got in fairly late, but so much earlier than I would have if I would have waited. So really thinking about the traffic helped out a lot and kind of planning that out. So I had a wonderful time with my son. And the third thing, and this is me being a little bit vulnerable, is I feel very, very out of shape, but I've started doing yoga. And this week, doing yoga went very well. And as I thought about why did it go well, well, it probably didn't go well. If you were watching me do it, you wouldn't have thought it went well because I am not flexible and I'm not very coordinated or talented in this way. But the reason it went well was because I did it. Even though it wasn't something I was super comfortable with, I just decided to do it. And I've been following this yoga program online and man, I just did it. And I feel so much better. Even though I didn't want to do it, I wasn't super excited about it. I knew it would be good for me, and so I just did it. There wasn't a lot of preparation, but I think the reason it went well was because I just decided to do it, and I put everything into it. I did the best that I could and really got some nice benefit out of it. I feel more flexible and more at peace and better on the road to physical health, and I think it helped me mentally. And of course, overarching in all of these things, as I'm a pretty spiritual guy, They all go better because of prayer and spending some time each morning praying about each of these things certainly helped out a ton. So Sarah, thank you so much for the challenge. Those are three things that went well for me this week and why. Thank you very much, Sean. And I'll put information on how to find his podcast in this episode's show notes. So my dad asked me what my next topic was going to be for this episode. And when I told him crisis planning, he just kind of laughed. He's like, well, I guess you got experience in that, huh? (laughs) The interesting thing about crisis planning is that when you use Mary Ellen Copeland's wellness recovery action plan, she actually does a magnificent job helping you to plan ahead for these crises. The interesting thing about that is that, well, first of all, if you plan ahead, we're told that if you are prepared, you shall not fear. And so if you plan ahead, it really takes a lot of the stress and angst out of not knowing what to do in a crisis or perhaps if it's really a really acute crisis and you're not able to communicate very well, then your family members and your loved ones will already have a plan of action that you have decided upon. So that makes things a lot less stressful for you because you get to maintain control over your care. And it makes things a lot less stressful for your family members who ordinarily would be panicked because they didn't know how to help you. Obviously, it's important to face the fact that we all have crises in our lives. It doesn't matter if you live with a diagnosis or not. There could be a car accident on the on the street, or you could be involved in something traumatic that obviously wasn't planned. So crisis planning is essential to alleviate that heartache that comes from not knowing what to do when you are stuck in a nasty situation. The exciting thing when talking about chronic illness or mental illness, noticing and responding to your signs early, like we were talking in the previous episodes, when you get really adept at being able to notice and respond to your early warning signs, you become better and better and better at preventing crisis. Because 
you no longer have those kinds of crises because you're able to deter them before you get completely off track. Obviously, there's going to be other kind of crises in your life, like I just mentioned, but it's good to have the plan in place so that if those things happen, you already have an idea of what, one, what you want to do for it. And the really important thing about this is that you need to write it out because oftentimes we get into situations where we really have difficulty communicating and so people need to know what's in our best interest and what we would like to do because that absolves them of the guilty, you know, would she want me to do this or not? The more clear you can be in writing your crisis plan, the better off those who are helping you will be able to step in. This is kind of your opportunity to teach people how to take care of you when you're not doing well. Like I was mentioning, allows you to keep that control because you've already made these choices. It also helps your loved ones because they're not gonna be wasting time trying to figure out what you want. So work hard to develop your crisis plan, and it's probably going to take some time because you're going to come into situations and you'll be like, gosh, I never thought of that before. I should add that to my crisis plan. I know for me, I have a lot of adaptions. I need to update my crisis plan because there are things that have happened in my life neurologically where I have never experienced these things before, like being nonverbal and having difficulty breathing, those kinds of things, those are things that I need to incorporate into my crisis plan so that other people around me know, okay, we don't need to panic, this is whatever. Or So I wanted to share an example of when my RAP plan was last used in a crisis. It was the fall of 2016, and this was before we understood what was going on with me. And so I had been having some issues with a kidney infection that um, I needed to get help for. And I was put on an antibiotic, which started helping the problem with the kidneys. But the problem was by the second dose, I had become completely psychotic because we didn't understand that I lived with metabolic encephalopathy from candida. So anytime I go on antibiotics, I can have some pretty gnarly symptoms. So my psychiatrist wanted to put me back on psychiatric medications because I hadn't experienced psychosis in five years. And I was like, uh, no. But then the psychosis was getting worse and worse and worse until one Sunday I was at home because I'd come home from church early. I actually saw my great grandma who passed away in 83 she was like following me in her easter dress with her Chris with her glasses on and it, i knew i was seeing things obviously but there she was very upset with me following me and so then i was in my house and the symptoms of the the encephalopathy became so bad that I was shaking my hands like hand flapping and I was pacing like a cage animal and I could not figure out how to get myself help because I couldn't express myself. So I texted my parents and I said, come over now, 911. And gratefully my fingers are working, right? So they came over and my mom trying to talk to me and the only sound that'll come out of my mouth sound like this. <laughs> because my brain could not process what I was trying to say to her. It would not connect. 
And so she took me by the shoulder and she looked right into my eyes and she said, Sarah, we have planned for this. Where is your ramp? And it was like the panic that my heart had gripped my heart just like calmed down because I knew I had planned for this. And even though I couldn't communicate because my voice wasn't working, she had a plan because we'd written it all out together. Well, I'd written it out and let them know that I had it. I think I need to work on making copies of my plan and giving it to my people so that they don't have to ask me for it. Because when I get really sick, I can't tell you where things are. So a crisis plan can be developed when you're feeling well. That's important because you can think the most clearly. And initially, there's going to be a lot of different parts in your well plan, in your, excuse me, in your crisis plan. And one of the important things is to pop of the piece of paper for your crisis plan is that you want to write out what you're like when you're feeling well. And the reason why that's important is because if a loved one has to take you to the emergency room, like mine did, they they have to be able to communicate what you're really like. So if you are normally a very talkative person and you're sitting there talking the doctor's ear off, you don't want them to say, oh, she's manic. You want them to look at that and say, oh, this is her normal, you know. Or if you're a very introverted person and you don't like talking to people and your loved one takes you into the ER, they might say, oh, she's depressed when in reality, you're just exceptionally shy. So it's really important to understand that you write this out very clearly and explain who you are when you're well so that the people around you who aren't familiar with you will actually be able to do a better assessment. So like when I have mine updated, I will include in there that I'm very articulate and that I normally speak without a lisp or without any kind of vocal impediment because they need to understand that this is just not really me. And the other reason this is important is because lots of people, when they talk to me, because I tell them like this, they talk to me like I'm a six-year-old, like their voice goes up an octave and they use really simple words and they talk to me very patronizingly. And I'm just like, dude, do you realize I teach at a university for four years? I understand you. I'm not stupid. I think that's part of the reason it's really important to write out what you're like when you're well so that people will be able to treat you with the dignity that you deserve. We've talked about what you're like when you're when you're well in previous episodes. Mary Ellen Copeland suggests just copying out what you put in your own portion of the wrap book about what you're like when you're well. Just go ahead and copy that into your crisis plan. That way you don't have to think too hard about that. You can even develop it a little bit further. But the second part is you need to write out signs that others need to take over. And so um, this is important because you need to describe those signs that would indicate to others that they need to take over your responsibilities. So for me, 
I have to explain, you know, when I'm having difficulty thinking and getting dressed and I'm putting my clothes on in the wrong order because my brain is so fogged, this is when someone else needs to say, okay, Sarah, I'm going to look at helping you make sure you get food today and I'm going to put myself in charge of make, calling you to make sure that you're taking your medications or checking, coming over to your house to make sure that you've eaten lunch or help you eat lunch because when I get like that, I have difficulty prioritizing my thoughts, which makes making food impossible because you know you're hungry, but you can't figure out how to make something for yourself. Again, this is just what I'm experiencing in my life. Everyone's going to have different experiences and it's going to be important for you to write out what when you want people to take over because a lot of times we can still go on we don't want someone to take over we want to be in control of our lives and so being able to make that distinction in writing can help calm the hearts of your loved ones because ultimately the final determination is up to you you get to decide when someone else should or should not take over but be very clear in describing these signs. Don't try to summarize anything. And in, in her book on page 36, she explains some of these signs. So I'm just going to read you her list because she's worked so hard at doing this. So just to quote the Wellness Recovery Action Plan Red Book, we're going to say, Your signs might include unable to recognize family members or friends, incorrectly identifying family and friends, Maybe you're in severe pain or you've lost the ability to control your body functions. Perhaps you have a high fever or unusual skin tone or you're unconscious or semi-conscious. Maybe you're uncontrolled pacing and unable to sit still. Maybe you're experiencing rapid breathing or you're gasping for breath. Perhaps you're extremely agitated and you're unable to stop repeating negative statements to yourself, like, for example, I'd rather be dead. Um, or perhaps you're unable to stop compulsive behaviors like gaming or gambling or counting things or just your brain won't turn off. Or perhaps you are catatonic, which happens to me. I would just... I just don't move for a long time because my brain is so fogged. Sometimes people forget to take care of personal hygiene because they are taking care of the basic, basic, basic necessities like breathing and trying to eat. Um, so the other things fall by the wayside because they require more thought to do it. And when your thoughts aren't working, that makes things difficult. But perhaps the person's um, having difficulty understanding how to cook for themselves or prepare meals. And if you're a loved one, you want to ask your, your family member or your friends, you know, when was the last time you ate? What did you have? Just things like that. Ask them open-ended questions. Um, because a lot of times, like I have dear, I have good friends that'll say, well, just let me know when you need help. And my problem is when I get like that, I don't recognize that I need help. And I 
would not be able to articulate what I needed in terms of help because if I knew what to do, I would have done it myself. But some other things that might indicate you need some help, someone stepping in would be maybe someone recognizes that you're being self-destructive or you're having abusive or violent behavior, or maybe you're increasing your substance use, or maybe you're threatening suicide or um, planning suicidal things. Maybe you're just not even getting out of bed. And you might not get out of bed for a variety of reasons. Like, I couldn't get out of bed because I had no muscle tone. So it's just when those situations come into play, you really need someone else to be there for you. And so that brings up another question. Not all of us have someone there for us. I know I didn't for a long time. And so it's important to, when you're feeling well, put yourself out there like in situations where you can volunteer in the community and get to know other people so that you can make friends and you can have the natural give and take in a relationship and be there for other people when they need you as well. When you first develop this plan, I mean, a lot of people... We just don't have the natural supports built in, right? A lot of us have been sick for a very long time. That can drive wedges between people that used to be supporters for us. It's important to do what you can to create those natural supports by getting to know other people. The interesting thing is, I mean, when I very first made my first rap plan, my my primary supports, I could talk to my family, but I didn't feel emotionally supported by them just because of where we were in our relationship. So my primary support, sadly enough, was just my counselor, my doctor, my nurse, and the crisis workers on the crisis line. So it took a lot of me getting out and and putting myself out there. And I found the most joy in volunteer situations because then people could see my real intent that I wanted to help people and I made a lot of good friends there. So if you're looking for a good place to volunteer um, in your neighborhood, you can go to justserve.org and they will have lots of ideas in your area of things that you can do to help others around you and get to know people and create friends that way, especially if you do those kinds of activities on a regular basis and people will really recognize what a valuable person you are and be more likely to be interested in helping you when you need it. The important thing when you choose the people that you want to support you, you have to make good choices. You have to find someone who's responsible, someone who has integrity, um, someone, I prefer someone who's optimistic because heaven knows we need hope in our life, right? So someone who's encouraging, um, someone who's not patronizing. (laughs) And so just write out who your care supporters are and put all their contact information. You can make copies of this so that each each of your care supporters have a copy of the other people's contact information. And this can be really important because I had some amazing friends through my journey who put themselves out there 
who overextended themselves, who didn't understand their own personal boundaries. And because of that, they burned out and no longer talked to me. I'm sure that my behavior had something to do with it, but in other ways, I don't think it had everything to do with it because I've been well for nine, eight or nine years now, and these people still are not interested in being friends with me, even though I apologize. It's really important as a caregiver to understand your own personal boundaries, understand when to delegate and when to get help so that you are not the only person someone is leaning on. And it's also important as a person that needs help that you recognize that you can't always call the same person. It's hard because you don't want to be burdened to other people. That was actually one of the hardest things for me because when I lived with perpetual suicidal thoughts for 12 years, they would always tell me that I was a burden and not to call anyone. I didn't want to be a burden. It was really hard for me. So anyway, you want someone who's understanding. You want someone who's trustworthy. You want someone who's calm. They must be calm. I have a loved one that I absolutely adore who is amazing in so many ways. But when crisis happens, all rational thought leaves the room and the person just melts down in tears or is completely frozen. So as much as I love this person, they are not the ideal care supporter just because they have difficulty processing the information around them. Other important thing is when you make your list of care supporters, if there's anyone in your life that is actually more hurtful than helpful, you need to add them to the list of people that you do not want involved in any way in your care. And you can write their name, and if you feel it's appropriate, you can write, explain why you're not interested in them helping, because that's just important. <laughs> You don't want someone around you who's toxic when you're trying to get better. So number four is you need to list out your medication. And you can also write out the name of the prescriber and the pharmacy. That way, if you end up going to the ER or you end up going, they end up calling like a, a tele-nurse or whatever, then your family member can say, oh yeah, this is her pharmacy, this is the phone number, this is her normal doctor. You can write out those medications you're willing to take, and you can also write out those medications that you are not willing to take. You need to write out your allergies, too, and your sensitivities. And like, for example, when I write out that I'm not willing to be on benzos, I have to explain why. For example, for me, they cause acute akathisia and rebound anxiety. So I'm not going to touch those ever again. Number five, you can write out the treatments that you're willing to have, and you can write out the treatments that you're not willing to have. For example, in my case, I would say, you know, I will never on this earth ever have electroconvulsive therapy again, but I will never be in a situation where any of my family members would say that would be a good idea because they've seen what it's done to me. So part six. So this is interesting, and I live in a pretty big city, and I'm not familiar with where any of these kinds of resources 
but apparently Mary Ellen Copeland is familiar with these kinds of resources. And so she says that there is locations that have community care and respite for people with mental health concerns. And I think that's awesome. I know there are places like that for other kinds of concerns, but uh, in California and San Diego, I'm not familiar with any respite care. But you can do a search for respite care, and that would help you if you're having a longer time situation. Um, I guess in some cases, the crisis houses can be considered respite care because they're a step below uh, inpatient hospital. They're not as structured, and they don't you don't have complete loss of um, human rights <laughs> because you're in a different kind of situation. Um, you can also write in that you're interested if you like alternate kinds of therapies like acupuncture, chiropractor, doing Feldenkrais. Those are things that I can do that will help alleviate some of the symptoms I might experience. So number seven is treatment facilities. And your support nurse might not be able to provide you with a home or a place to stay. And so they might want to check you into a treatment facility. If that's the case, it's really important in your uh, crisis plan that you write out where you're willing to go and where you're totally not willing to go. And you just go from your own personal experience and it may be information you've heard from the people in your community that will help you make good decisions. And again, it's important to be prepared, right? Pretend you're a Boy Scout, be prepared, get this all written out, be very clear and if possible, so that people understand your wishes. And then you can get help from others. Um, basically, you can ask yourself, what I, what do I need my supporters to do for me that would help me feel better? It's gonna take some thought, right? But some ideas might include, Mary Ellen Copeland gives this idea. She says, listen to me without giving me advice, judging me or criticizing me. Hello, that seems really obvious, but I know all too often, even myself, when people start telling me all their problems, all too often I start brainstorming and solving them, problem solving and getting all excited because I'm going to help them. When in reality, lots of times, these people are really just really having a hard time and they really just need someone to listen. And so I can do my best work if I merely listen in silence and let them know I'm listening. Just being real, right? There have been times when I've just walked up to my husband and I have told him, I don't need you to say anything. I just need you to hold me. And then I just start crying and he just holds me. He doesn't know what's going on. He's probably confused, but I get it out of my system and then he's like, what's up, dude? And I tell him what's going on. But initially I can't get past the, I need someone to hold me in order to communicate better and to get this off my chest. Sometimes you need someone to encourage you to do something like to get out of bed. So I know sometimes my sweetheart comes home with a thing of bubbles and gets me outside to sit in the backyard and my little lawn chair and just blow bubbles with the birds outside and just get in the sunshine. Um, and that can be very, very helpful. So helping people get out and move, not giving them a guilt trip about it, but just say, hey, let's go do something. 
and my sweetheart was having a hard time the other day and he'd watched something that he that he didn't want to have seen on TV and I told him I was like okay it's time to stand and stretch time to come outside come to blow bubbles and he's like I don't feel like it and I said I know that's why you need to do it and he was very begrudging about it but then afterward it took him like a half an hour to feel like to get out of his system what he'd seen on TV and then he was like, you know what? I couldn't get it out of my system when I was out, when I was stuck in the house, but getting in the fresh air helped me. Those are some things perhaps you can ask them to help you uh, find the number for a peer support specialist. Maybe you might tell them, you know, I really need you to be quiet for about an hour, but if you could call and check on me in an hour so I can get this out of my system, that would be awesome. Maybe well, let's watch some silly YouTube things together. I know I personally love Studio C. They can make me laugh pretty hard when I'm in a bad mood. As part of the crisis plan in your help for others, sometimes you need to make a chore list. Sometimes you need help doing things like dishes or making a grocery list or getting to the grocery store or maybe counting out your money at the cashier when you're if you're not using a debit card. That can all be very helpful. And so making that chore list of things others can do to help you, like picking up the mail, sorting the mail. And then, of course, you need to write out things to avoid. Your supporters might decide to do something that you don't agree with when you're well. And so obviously you wouldn't agree with it if you're not well. For example, if you don't want people to entertain you, or if you don't want, you know, people chattering at you endlessly or forcing you into doing something or being impatient, those kinds of things can be very unsupportive. So you have this all written out, right? And then what you need to do, and this is really important, a lot of times when people think you're really sick, they assume that you are always going to be really sick. And that's just not the case. It's important to write out the things that can help your supporters know when they can stop using your crisis plan. So part nine is explaining how your supporters know that everything is getting back on track. When you feel better, they'll no longer have to help you. And some of those things might include you've slept through the night. Um, she says maybe you've eat, you're eating at least two good meals a day. And when you're rational and reasonable, or you're taking care of your personal hygiene without being prompted, when you can carry on a good conversation, those are all things that can help. So you know yourself best and you know when you're capable of going forward and when you're not. And so when you get back into being able to do things for yourself, you don't want people to keep trying to do things for you because that's just not how it, it's not fun to be in a situation where everyone's doing everything for you and you're getting upset with them because you can do it yourself. Now that you've completed your crisis list and she has this all written out really easy and I'm even gonna post a link for you in the show notes to 
the website because she has this really cool thing that you can order directly from her and you can just keep it in your pocket and your wallet and your purse. And it is an actual one page crisis plan where after you make your crisis plan, you can fill it out and you can carry it with you. I have on mine, I have in case of emergency because I keep it in my wallet and I've actually had uh, like EMT ambulance drivers have actually had to use it. And it tells them all my, my allergies to medications. It tells me, it tells them which hospitals I'm willing to go to and which ones I'm not. The nice thing about having a crisis plan is that you can actually really work to perfect it when you're feeling well, and then you can take it and get it notarized. And you can use it in essence as an advanced directive. All too often, People who experience psychiatric symptoms don't have the ability to maintain their own treatment choices in, during acute crises because others choose to make choices for them. And so having an advanced directive can really help them, especially because these advanced directives are legally blinding. You can use them in essence. Uh, to ensure that your desires for treatment in crisis situations are maintained in hospital settings. Anyway, I want to thank you all for enduring with me through this experience of having this different speech impediment. I'm optimistic that my voice will continue to improve through the course of this treatment, and I will share more about that in episodes to come. If you find value in this podcast, it would mean the world to me if you would please like it, subscribe, share, and leave a review on iTunes because it's only by your reviews that people will actually stop and listen to them in all of their podcast choices. So have a fantastic day. There is no deadline on potential. So get out there and have some fun. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Emotional Self-Reliance Podcast. For more information about this episode, check the show notes on www.psychrecoveryandrehab.com slash ESR podcast. Was this episode helpful? Leave a review and share with a friend. Keep exploring wellness tools to empower achieving your fullest potential by tuning into our weekly episodes. Until then, take care.